Welcome to Marketing Hell. This is the podcast that picks through the rubble of our most abysmal marketing failures to see if we can find one or two lessons that mean you, the marketer, can make all different blunders in your own campaigns. My name is Richard Leyland. In this episode, I'm interviewing Max Hoppy. Max is great. He's really well known here in the UK marketing community. He's built online retail businesses worth tens of millions of pounds. If you're an American or you think in dollars, pounds are like dollars only more. And he's worked for Google, where he had a stint as an industry manager. And we'll hear a bit about the pleasure and the pain of that particular role. And really, I'd say he's been the king of Google ads over many years, both outside of Google and on the inside as well. But as we'll hear, he's definitely not the king of TV ads. For the last three years, he's been the Joint Managing Director of Bind, which is an ad agency that's been slurping up awards. And as always on Marketing Hell, Max is our guest and he's a skilled marketer, right? He's actually good at this. So I want to thank him for being happy to put his ego aside, sharing his own personal marketing hell with me and with you. So let's get to it. Great to see you, Max. Welcome to Marketing Hell. Looking forward to hearing all about what you've got to tell us today. And I think we begin in the wonderful world of TV advertising, which has often felt to me like the ultimate expression of marketing, although maybe things have changed. Over to you. I'd love to hear this tale. Well, just before I do, I've got to say great name. I I think marketing hell, (laughs) it takes me to some pretty dark places, just the... uh... Just the uh, the name of your podcast, a great name. Amazing. Well, let's go to those dark places. Yeah. Well, TV advertising. I think there is. I think your point's really good. It's kind of a badge of honour, and it feels like I'm working with a client at the moment, and they've kind of got obsessed with the idea of let's get on TV, like let's get organised, all these things organised, so we can go on TV, and um, which is slightly odd. But I suppose lots of the most famous advertising campaigns in the world were TV campaigns. So anyway. The one that um, that springs to mind for me is I, w- I was marketing director. I was client side role, working for a business called Tires on the Drive, and these guys. I mean, we were selling like twenty million quids worth of tires. So, so medium medium size get getting on. And you're selling these direct to the consumer on a website. Is that roughly how this? This works? was direct to consumer. The the model. It was a wonderful model actually. As, as a marketer, I fell in love with the model. I mean, tires worst category ever boring but tires on the drive what they were doing was um you were going to a website putting in your registration clicking the tire they knew what tires you had and then they would drive to you and change your tire either at your home or at work and i just felt the proposition i thought was golden um i still do i think that's it's it's a great convenience proposition so doing really well lots of growth mostly grew through digital marketing and then we thought one of our big barriers is was um, that people were not aware of the category. So we needed a media that was going to reach a lot of people and allow us to tell a story. And TV, in, in fairness, can do that. Like the audiences aren't what they were 10, 20 years ago, but you can reach a large audience and tell a story in a nice way. So um, we what did, I, I'd never done this before. I, I grew up um, as a kind of performance marketer using spreadsheets to justify stuff. But I did a you know, thorough pitch process and we appointed uh, JWT, like one of the old guard um, ad agencies. Um, Amazing. This is suddenly very Mad Men. Yeah, it was a bit Mad Men. Well, it felt a bit Mad Men. Um, I spent 100 grand on the ad. Um, I don't actually know why I was obsessed with, I think, I, I mean, one of the traps, so breaking out the story, one of the traps is um, 
and I know this because I run an ad agency now, these guys, ad agencies are sales machines. Like half of their competence is being able to tell great stories and sell to businesses, yet you're hiring them to sell to consumers, which is a hilarious little thing. But I fell into the trap of thinking that I really needed to invest in a proper creative asset. And this hundred grand, that's all on production of the ad, right? That's not the buy. That... No, no, nothing to do with the media buy, but that is the the story. So that was kind of, JWT actually didn't produce the ad. What they did was they came up with the concepts of the ad and they managed the production. And the production, I mean, it was, this was a wonderful learning experience. The production was like 100 people. We closed down part of Yorkshire to film, film the ad. It was great. Okay, let me just jump in here and say, wouldn't it be great if you could see Max's ad? Well, the bad news is it's been completely expunged from the internet. It will never be... Now, that's nonsense. Just go to YouTube and search. Great service should come to you. Okay, back to Max. But one of the traps you find is lots of the literature around TV advertising and what to do is produced by the industry with a, with an incentive to sell. So um, I think this is really difficult for a new marketer or as in a, you know, an inexperienced TV marketer. Um, if I was going to do it again, I, would, I wouldn't spend that kind of money on the production. And whose money was it? Was this, was this a, a sort of a VC-backed company? Were you selling, spending you know, real money, spending earnings? You know, where does this well, come it was, from? it was real money, but this was not a profitable business. This was a business that was losing half a million pounds a month. It was burning um, a lot of cash. But that was part of the business plan. I mean, this so to your question, we'd raised it from two venture capitalists. Uh, the business raised, uh, I think, about twenty million pounds over its life. It ended up selling itself to Halfords, and the investors were comfortable with making some pretty big bets to grab market share. Like, so, so they were they were comfortable with. Um, I mean, we were spending two million pounds a year on search on just paid search marketing. So. Um, we had we had a reasonable budget for a business of, of the, you know of our size, um, and but, but a huge ambition. We wanted to get this thing. We really wanted to d- disrupt the market. Um, so the capital was there. And so, who decided TV advertising is the right way of spending the, the marketing budget? Was that you, someone else? No, not really. It was the CEO. I got pushed. I got um, I got hired as a digital marketing person. I was I was called marketing director, but I was kind of like digital marketing director, I suppose. And the CEO was ex-Michelin, and he had um, some experience spending kind of brand budgets uh, at Michelin, uh, and TV was one of those, the media that they, they spent money on, and he pushed me down it. But I was willing. Like, it wasn't like, wasn't, you know, I was excited by the opportunity, and I felt like his experience was going to help me. It, it didn't in the end, because I don't think he had, I don't think he was that accountable when he'd spent money like this in the past as a brand manager. Um, a big tire company so I was accountable to to the kind of to the VCs so anyway we made the ad and we started spending the money and we used AdSmart Sky AdSmart um, to start with give me a brief a brief description of what that is I don't know myself AdSmart's um, a wonderful story um, a, a disappointing reality it's the ability to target audiences using Sky's advertising product. So here's here's the way, best way to explain it. If you buy linear, t- if you put an advert on linear TV, say say we buy ITV in the Northwest, everyone in the Northwest watching Corrie gets the ad. If you buy um, using AdSmart, 
me and you might be watching the same program in the same location, but you get different ads to me because there's been some clever, uh, there's been some extra targeting added. So AdSmart's promise is that it allows you to target at like an individual box level. The reality isn't. I'm not going to go into to, to. I don't actually want to slam it, and it may have it, it may have evolved since I used it. So, so this is advertising on Sky, which to non-British viewers is a, a more of a niche um, set of um, set of channels available to you, smaller viewership than the sort of most of the national channels. Yeah, the the other cool thing you can do with it is you can create a really nice control group. So I can say, okay, I want to target these people, but I'm also going to exclude this little subset of them that are exactly my target audience, they're who I'm hoping to target. And what we're going to do is we're going to see, uh, we're, going to, we're going to look at the sales in both the exposed area and the control area. And we're going to actually do some maths to work out what was, what was the incremental benefit of being on TV. So that was actually really cool. That, that's a big part of the Sky Ad Smart Smarts sell that I, I bought into as a digital marketer. I love I love that. I think look, the the mistake, so the, the, the punchline of all this is the advertising didn't really give us demand in a kind of zero to two month uh, window. You know, we, we could point at some new sales, but like the cost of acquisition was something like I want to say 10 to 20 times. What we were, if we were paying ten pounds to get a customer using digital marketing, this was, you know, coming in at two hundred quid, something like that. And our order value was like our average order value was like one hundred and seventy quid. So it was, it was like spend a pound to get ninety p back, which you don't want to do. My mistake in all this, though, the the learning for me is all about the objective. Like I didn't really, I feel I feel like I tried to make a channel that's hitting people when they're not necessarily in market. Yeah, you might look like my customer, but you're not in market. And if you're not in the market, if you just had your tires changed yesterday, you're not in the market for years, a couple of years. So um, I was trying to make a channel that was hitting people, you know, in a context that was not in market and then trying to measure it within market measurement. And I think I think that's the learning from it. I, it may not have been the worst. The 100 grand actually may not have been the worst thing to spend the money on, the playmate, the, the media buy might have been the best buy in the world, but the way I was measuring it was um, was was ne- was never going to make it appropriate to carry on with that measurement. And I think that was my, I think that I think it requires bravery. I mean, if I was going to redo it again, I would have made it incredibly clear with both the investors and the and the board of directors that this is not going to look good on the spreadsheet this month or actually in the next six months. Or ever, if it's costing you a pound to acquire a 90p revenue client, right? Yeah, but the argument would be that over a 10-year period, it might. Actually, if you w- if you could measure it over a 10-year period, maybe actually you spend a pound and you get five pounds back. It then comes back to kind of bravery, instincts, experience. So at what point did you begin to lose faith? Because my my sense is when you do, you know, TV campaign, it's the sort of thing that you might tell your mother to go and watch, right? It has a kind of breakthrough quality to it. You know, you you know that people you know might see it. You're kind of proud of it. You've obviously invested a lot of money in the actual ad. What At what point do you, does things start tipping into, I'm not sure about this, we might have to back away? I'm, tr- I'm scratching my head on the memory now because... I think we probably spent about a hundred to two hundred grand on media, but I can't remember exactly. So I think that it was 
it was purely um, we'd probably gone through two or three board meeting cycles, and the board weren't getting um, the results. And I was, I was, I'm a cautious marketer, even though this story probably tells you. <laughs> well, I've heard of a quarter, quarter of a million down the drain is what I've inter- interpreted so far to be cruel about it. Exactly. But I, I was probably forthcoming with the, I, I will have been, can't remember exactly, but I, I know that my style would have been to give the board options and outs regularly. It won't have been. And actually, I think that's pro- that's another mistake. Actually, I think that if we'd, if I'd managed expectations appropriately, attached the measurement, the appropriate measurement to it. So this was this was either an awareness or consideration play for me. Probably more awareness actually than consideration. So how were we? Did we have the appropriate brand tracking set up to say does this group of people before they saw the ad or we did the campaign, we were at awareness five percent or whatever, and actually afterwards our target was to get it to twenty percent or whatever, you know, whatever. That's that's where I should have taken the battle, awareness and and consideration. And I kind of learned about this stuff. I actually did some. I think I did. I went back to university afterwards for a period of time, and I I focused on brand marketing metrics because I was like, this is something I want to. This is a this is a a mistake or a thing that I would not want to repeat in the same way again. I want to just fill in some of the gaps here. How were you seen by the rest of the business after this? Were you the one carrying the can for this generally? Weirdly, no. Like the, the funny thing is I wasn't fired or anything. It was the CEO actually ended up losing his job, which is an interesting one. He was a founder CEO. Um, he lost control of the business from a kind of equity point of view, and then he lost the confidence of the board. This will have been part of it. I think because I was pushed, I was fortunate in a way that the CEO had pushed me down the, in the direction. I said I, I was will, uh, willing. I was. But... I'd made it clear. One thing I did that was good, I suppose, is I didn't go in and say I'm the expert TV advertising man ever. I said, guys, you were. I said I can do this. I can do a thorough process, and I felt that my my process for choosing the right the creative agency, even though it just sound a bit wild, we saw quite a few. We got an option on a twenty grand ad. It helped that. Uh, one of the VC's sons ran JWT's office in New York. So I had like my finance, one of the big financiers was bought into using JWT as the agency, as the ad agency. So that was helpful. And then the on the media side, AdSmart looks great as a choice on paper. Um, so if I was going to have to have the time, I'd, I'd chosen AdSmart again. Without this experience, I'd choose AdSmart again because its it, it story is... It's it's got a scientific story. Uh, the the reality is 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 isn't quite that. We also had ah, I didn't mention this. I had a um I I built in a performance related payment mechanism with Sky. So part of the media payment to them was based on hitting certain targets that were not hit. So I saved in in that that approach saved some money. It, it will have been tens of thousands, opposed to hundreds of thousands, but it's still a significant amount of money in anyone's book. Tens of thousands. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm a technology marketer, and I've generally worked in in environments where it's a business to business sale, ultimately. Yeah. And I've always seen TV advertising as one way that you can just throw huge sums of money away, and the other one that I've always thought is a massive just waste of money is billboard brand advertising billboards in airports you know big software companies that do that sort of massive really indirect you know banner buys in in Heathrow airport and the likes 
those are the the methods that I consider to look like just pouring money down the drain. But I'm on the outside looking in, having never actually been directly involved. What do you think? Have, Have I more or less got it right that this is a good way of pouring money down the toilet? Or are there businesses for whom this is a sensible mechanism? It's all about... It comes back to it all comes back to the, the the kind of basics of who are we targeting and what are we targeting with basics of marketing strategy STP segmentation targeting positioning B two B typically your customer it's not it typically isn't a mass audience it's usually some specific businesses so then when you think about media choices TV is always out like TV maybe it's actually changed really recently but. but for most of its life, TV has been the ability to reach a, a large group of people at once. I'm seeing Salesforce advertise on TV at the moment, and it's baffling me. Like, even though Salesforce have arguably got probably one of the, the most mass-reaching B2B products in the world, and they've segmented the market in lots of ways, they can, do, they can service small businesses up to enterprise, I still don't see TV as a good choice. Well, they've got a huge number of users, but a very small buying group, right? A tiny, a tiny proportion of the population that would ever make a, a software buying decision. You know, like yeah. Correct. And even the users, even the users, FMCG or um, CPG, if America, like that makes sense for TV because we all buy. Like if they're going, this is the way to think about it. If you're going to hit a thousand people, how many of those thousand are potential buyers at one stage in their life? With an FMCG product, it can be quite a high number. Do you know what I mean? As in, as in we all buy washing up liquid tablets. But if you're selling Salesforce, out of that thousand, how many of them are influencing a Salesforce buy? I, I find that a really baffling media choice. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, um, in terms of the long-term future of, of that type of advertising, I often think of my kids who are eight and five, and they never, ever see a conventional TV ad because of the way they consume uh, TV, it's um, you know, it's Netflix and it's Amazon Prime, and um, it's the BBC app. And then the only experience they have of, of advertising is when I've downloaded a freemium app for them on their tablet, and because I have too too tight to pay one ninety nine for the app, they get interrupted by ads, you know, inside the game they want to play. That is their sole exposure to you know ads straight to them, apart from you know ambient stuff as they walk down the street that's that's their only ad experience and it does make me wonder if there's any future really for the type of tv advertising that you're talking about yeah well it just depends on will the audience your, your argument there is the audience is uh, as the as old people die the audience disappears <laughs> that's that's and so tv's got to work out how tv's structurally screwed um unless it changes its model and like that i mean you're going to see, and here's the other trend that's really that's tough for lots of media companies, is ad-supported media is getting such a bad rap. So, so at the moment in social media, like the, what the, the main problem with the social media kind of um, echo chambers, rage, clicks, da-da-da, is, is, is underpinned by an ad-supported business model. And what I think you're going to see in the next 10 years is the likes of Twitter I see them moving away from an ad-supported model. I think they will be a subscription business where if you have, it's free for me and you, but if you've got 5,000 followers, you have to pay a monthly fee. As soon as they can do that and get revenue in that kind of way, they can put a lot more, they can be a lot bolder on the controls and the mechanisms they use to stop this rage. So I think that media generally, I think is is moving to subscription as, as a general macro trend. 
as an advertiser, that's a bit, uh, an advertising company, that's a little bit scary. I've got to work out, for, for me, I've got to work out um, how that affects me. And, uh, you know, if you're, so, so that's, that, I, I don't know if that um, plays to kind of what you're saying, but that's just what popped into my head. When yeah, you said no, it, it does. It does. Let, let's move on to later in your career then. I know that um, at a certain point later, you ended up at uh, Google, and I believe that you're involved in in sort of big paid search clients. Is that right? Tell me, tell me about how that um, had elements of hell in it. How did that have elements of hell in it? Told me an interesting tale about um, getting trapped somewhere between organic and um, and paid, and and the sort of difficult positions that put you in. That's actually that's a good one. There, there were two things actually. That, that that let me go on that one. So that um, so when I left Google, I had a little exit interview it was it was informal actually but it was it'd be called an exit interview and i was asked by my boss is there anything i did that kind of google would frown upon and because i was leaving i had no you know i was pretty honest and i said one of the things that i did is is some of my clients were spending millions of pounds with us and then they would have a problem on the organic side of search maybe they'd get a penalty for something that had happened and in in many cases they were using agencies to do work and they and the client didn't know why suddenly they'd lost a big revenue uh, stream because of a google update organic update so they'd ring me and ask can i help and our the kind of party line in google was that the those two sides of the business were they might as well have been different businesses and I, it wasn't appropriate for me to even comment you know on that situation did you actually have the knowledge to be talking about um, organic search and you know changes to the algo and so on? Only, only because I'd been client side for probably eight to ten years. I can't, I can't remember the t- times exactly. And I'd worked at AO.com when they were arguably one of the best, the hottest organic. You know, had one of the hottest organic teams in in retail, and also then had had been penalised really heavily. I had some experience. I was like one step removed from it, but I had some experience of what happened there. And so I didn't have, I couldn't tell people how to fix things, but I could just share what I knew about the subject and also introduce, maybe make an introduction to someone at AO.com who um, would be a friend of mine that could help them. But I wasn't supposed to do that. And I did. Like the the the, the reality was I'd get, a, I'd, get, I'd get the CEO of Optical Express ringing me you know, worried about jobs that would be lost because of this algorithm update and saying, can you help me or give me some sort of point of view on this when I'm spending millions with you? I found that a very difficult situation to not help when I felt that I could help. I couldn't give him all the answers, but I felt that I could help his situation and maybe educate him a bit and give him good questions to ask people. So I did. And I, but I, you know, I covered my backside a little bit and said, look, this is, I'm going to speak to you as Max Hopkinson, um, opposed to Max Hopkinson, Google industry manager. I kind of said, look, I'm not, I, I said, look, I'm not really supposed to do this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and help you. Should you do that? This is, this is, this is an interesting question. So you're in a, a, essentially you're in a marketing role inside Google. You're speaking to either marketers at your clients, or if it's su- sufficiently important, you're speaking to the CEO at clients. What 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 should be the answer? You know, you, these people spend a lot of money with you, and they want to know about the non-paid bit. Should should you be giving them guidance on that, or should you really be keeping stum? I I don't have a good answer. 
I I believe you should, but I also believe the organisation has it is is within its rights to fire you for doing it. So so that that's what I think. Um, I think that I I am always going to do that, and it's a, it's one of the reasons I work for myself now because I don't want to have to answer questions like that because or rather I don't want to face the consequences of doing the right thing or what I think is the right thing. But I, a business should be able to fire you if their view of the right thing is different to yours and it's been made clear to you and it's not like you know i'm not talking about something that's like a, a, you know a big ethical point or something that's you know something that's abhorrent for me that's google's stance on it is just deeply disappointing rather than it's not illegal it's not it's the way they've chosen to run the business so i think they're within the rights to discipline or ultimately f- fire me but um i i i believe that in, my integrity is more important to me than my, jo- my, my job, which it sounds totally bollocksy, but I don't know. No, no, I buy that. Buy that, absolutely. Did did they kick you out or did you leave? I'm not clear how you, what, what ended that role for you. I, I left because I started, I was commuting um, between London and Manchester and I said, I can't do this, guys. I said, I need to work at the Manchester office or I'm going to go and get a new job. And they ummed and ahed and then I got a new job. And then when I told them, they they um, kindly said, "No, you can work out of the manager office." But I'd fallen out of love. When you go through a job process, I don't know if you found this yourself. You fall in love with the with your new employer. If you go through that, you often you're kind of committed to it by the end of it. So it was difficult for me to to U-turn on the decision. But um, I love Google. I'm a big fan of Google, by the way. Like it's not no business is perfect. That's the most perfect big organization that I'm familiar with. It's still got problems, but I don't know one that's better. Yeah, right. On the score of um, of leaving companies, have you ever been fired from a marketing role? I've not, but I think that's because I I've left before. Whenever I'm scared, I I leave. I think when when I'm actually scared, I don't think I've said that quite loud before. But that is the re- that is the case. What what would terrify you to think I'm going to leave? It's usually that I feel that my the job I won't name the company because I feel it's not appropriate but I left one job where I felt like my confidence was getting killed every day like it was just getting chipped away at and I was scared that for lots of reasons that made me scared it made me scared about not being myself it made me scared that actually that would impact my performance because if you're focused on what others are going to think about you instead of what the right job is to do that you're not going to operate very well so um i think that yeah i think that um that sounds like you were doing things that you that weren't sitting comfortably with you right uh, you, clearly you don't want to name the company but can you give me an idea of the, the type of category what what sort of stuff were you not comfortable with to be honest it, it was more that i i went into a job having to create a lot of change and i felt that after about three months i felt that i didn't have any support i felt that the people underneath me, as in my direct reports, I wanted to change. They, they were they were actually really lovely people, but they were they were totally square pegs and round holes. It was a it was just not that they were not right to grow the team, and that's that's just sad the sad reality. So I felt like I didn't have support underneath my peer group, so people on the same level of me, incredibly threatened by me. It was a business that didn't like. They felt almost that I maybe I was going to go after their job next. Maybe I don't know, but I felt like I was getting kind of knifed from the side. And then my boss 
I didn't feel I had initially I did feel like I had support, but very quickly I felt that the I don't even want to give the jet it's a bloke, you can have he. He was um he was he had his own political challenges going on, and I felt that I was almost a bit of a pawn in that. So I felt like from all angles I had zero support and I felt my confidence go down. And in the end I had a panic attack actually. I had a panic attack public speaking. I was speaking in front of like 50, ta- 50 people and somebody I worked alongside, so it was a, p- a peer opposed to a, someone worked for me or above me, um, really laid into me about a decision, like a, quite an aggressive way. And then I was thrust into this public speaking environment, like without preparation. My boss said, uh, Max, I need you to do this uh, because I've just been pulled over here. Can you just update everybody on this? And it was a 50 person, it was a big team, 50 people in the team. So I'm I'm suddenly thrust in front of people going through a slide deck that I've never seen. Oh, I've done that as well. It's hell, isn't it? It's terrifying. If if it's not your content, yeah. I had a panic attack, and I told them that this this is maybe a bit cringy, but I did, I told them what was happening. I said, I've just got to tell you, I'm having a panic attack here. And then I ended up in telling them that I was having it. I grounded myself, and I ended up presenting fine in the end. But I ended up leaving that job. Because it was was brilliant, though, and I mean this massively sincerely, I wouldn't change that career thing for a million pounds because it it led to so much good change. And this is the thing. It's it's counterintuitive. Your massive fuck-ups are the things that fuel you to go on, to do stuff. So I ended up doing a public speaking course. I ended up like really working on my public speaking after that incident and it made me a better person. And then I, I and then I thought a lot about culture and, it, and I mean, it probably catalyzed me to start my own business, to be honest, that that because I realized I didn't want to work for anybody ever again. I'd kind of decided I, I felt Google were a wonderful employer and this experience was was not great for me. And I thought, I don't actually want to go and work for a Google again and I don't want to end up in a place like this again. So I'm going to go and do my own thing. Mm. The rest is history. Well, we'll come back to some of the stuff you've been doing uh, yourself. I feel like we're in confessional mood. Can I confess my own story of never having been fired, but why that's a completely misleading thing? So um, I've technically never been fired from a job, but that is bending the truth to almost breaking point. Um, Because in in my last but one role, I was the chief marketing officer for a a crowdfunding platform. I won't name it, but it's pretty easy to find out who that is. And I had a bit of a personality clash with the CEO, right? This is a small growing company, growing using VC money, um, the CEO's company, essentially. Having a personality clash with the CEO was kind of meant the whole thing was hold below the waterline from the very, very beginning. I didn't really like him. He didn't really like me. It was a tough relationship. And um, I was. I felt I was doing reasonably all right in the job. My task had been to grow the team, which I did. I got good people in. We ramped up the marketing spend, specifically designed, uh, you know, with the objective of getting new uh, members to sign up. This is investor members. So all that side of stuff was going quite well. But the boss and I just could barely look at each other. And the, I've still got a kind of scarring memory that um, we went for a meeting in a cafe just down the road from the office. And I realized this is an odd thing. Why aren't we meeting in the office? We're in a cafe. And I presented a bunch of KPIs and it was clear that we were spending way more, but I was achieving the objective. And he just looked at me and sat there with his co-founder, I should say. And he said, I think we should consider whether you would like to resign, Richard. And I went quiet and I said, yeah, I think think I'll resign. (laughs) And that's... uh, I I don't know how you'd 
I mean, what do you do? I mean, because if you don't, it's like, like what would, I mean, it would have just been hell. A buddy of mine ended up at the tires business, the commercial director um, had a similar proposition, um, said, you know, basically the CEO made it clear that he wanted him to resign. He decided to stay and his, uh, his life was made hell. Like, I mean, literally the passive aggressiveness <laughs> towards him was it could you could have made a TV show about it? And um, the, the chap in question actually was is mentally very tough. If he wasn't, it would have destroyed him. So I don't know if anyone said that to me, I'd that would be um, I would be resigning. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I thought it through for all of five seconds. You know, uh, I for one thing, I wasn't enjoying it. You, you know that you can't work in a place where the you know the founder ceo major shareholder doesn't like you right there's no there's no way you can continue to work in an environment like that so uh yeah i just said um okay i will resign but i'm going to do my my notice period of a month and in my head of course it was i've got a month to find a new role but yeah so so i thought i would just confess that because i'm not sure i've ever confessed that before uh, when if ever people sort of ask about that i I, I kind of just slightly evade the question of how it ended, but that is how it ended, and it wasn't any fun at all. I think I think our culture, as in the UK culture, is um, for whatever reason, I prefer the. I, we're, I don't think we're as good at dealing with this stuff as our friends over um, over in the states. We're almost business failures, being fired. It's often I, I think that people kind of accept that that that's part of the the learning experience and actually makes you stronger. I think us Brits are a bit more shy about admitting it. Anyway, listen, we've got some some really interesting stories there from a couple of your past roles. I'm interested now just in your more general thoughts about marketing hell. And let me let me start with my opinion and then let's let's take it from there. So my opinion is experienced marketers have a disappointingly small range of talent. And the biggest talent I think I have, and I'm not sure you can even call it a talent is I've got a decent idea what will probably work and what will probably not work. So present some tactical stuff to me and I can point at it and say good idea or bad idea. And I sometimes worry that after 20 years of experience and leading teams, that's about as good as it gets in terms of my competence. Talk to me about what you think competence actually is for, for marketers. What do I think competence is? I think, there's t- I think there's two things that come to mind. I think there's the tactical competence, which maybe you're talking about, where literally, like, some people are geniuses at tactics, and you're like, crikey, that's a really good, that's a really clever way to win customers' hearts and mind or win some sales. And I'm like, and it's usually quite tactical. And then at the other end, a competence that I think a lot about is is marketing um, strategy, which for me is, it comes back to that STP. Like, it's about segmenting a market that by the way that's such a rubbish term it's a people that can do segmentation well are so inspiring because they don't segment each market in the same way they look at like how do you carve this market up so rx bar did it with um they start i mean they ended up building a half a billion pound business sold to kellogg and it you know launched a protein bar at a time where protein bars were 10 a penny and they segmented the market by going after that cross, across the CrossFit community as it was exploding. What an interesting segment to go after. And I find that people that really understand what segmentation is, really inspiring. And then and then targeting and positioning. So, okay, who are we going for in this segment? And then what are we going to stand for? I think you learn I think that you learn that as an undergrad, but I think actually the experienced marketers have gone through, have seen the power of it 
And like what it actually does is it creates focus. Like all that actually does is it says, we're going to concentrate our resources here. That's what it does. And I think that focus is a thing that if you, if the, the leaders I talk about marketers or not, I find that the focus principle is something that seems to get brought up quite a lot. Or see, you know, I think that the, the amateurs go after everything. And I think that that's something that, so marketing competence, I think there's, I don't have the tactical one. I'm not particularly good at tactics. What I think I'm quite good at is the more strategic stuff, creating focus. And then actually any, you know, leadership role requires you to get the most out of people, you know, finding the best people, putting them together, giving them an environment to do a great job. And that that isn't really a marketing, you know, that's not reserved for marketing. That, that's cool. That's a really good evocation. I, I'm enjoying that. So you've split it into segmenting, targeting, positioning. If you do those things well, you can be a good marketer. That's that's what I'm taking from that. Well, I think you can be a strategic marketer. You might not be a tactical marketer. You might need other people to do. You might not be the complete job. I mean, as you know from startups, one of the challenges if, if you're in a startup role as a marketer is you have to try and do a bit of everything. And no one's good at that, really. Every, you know, you can be okay at it, but no, there's rare people that are really good at everything. My, my my view is most marketers learn to discipline, and they're quite they've got some quite specialist domain knowledge in one little one area. That might be doing trade shows, it might be TV advertising, it might be whatever digital something. And then and then they need to learn the principles that actually can be applied to any marketing situation, and they're usually strategic principles. And then it's about getting people you know getting the right people getting them in the right positions and somehow getting the most out of them which sounds e so easy to say that's, that's the hardest thing really because all humans are weird all humans are weird i can think of no better way to end a pod so hope you enjoyed that i certainly did want to thank max for being a great sport being prepared to admit his failings and foibles and if you want to get in contact with him on twitter he's at max hoppy that's M-A-X-H-O-P-P-Y. And Bind, his digital marketing agency, is bind.co.uk. B-I-N-D.co.uk. Thanks very much. See you next time.